When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today. everybody welcome to who cares about the rock hall a podcast about the rock and roll hall of fame i'm your host joe quazala i know entirely too much about the rock and roll hall of fame and this is about the only time of year where that even a little bit matters with me as always via zoom chat is my co-host who maybe is hitting an all-time low of caring about the rock and roll hall of fame it's Kristen Stuttered. hello yeah, you know, I could be back to pre-pod levels of how little I give a shit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and a, few, a few other things on your mind, maybe? Yeah, we really crested. We were really riding high at one point, and I really cared a lot, and I truly, I truly do not right now. You're back nope. down. You've lost all information you may have learned in the past two years, and uh, clean slate. Lord willing. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, But with us today, I'm very excited to uh, have this person, an activist, uh, scholar, uh, a Northeast Ohioan. This this makes two uh, weeks in a row where we have someone from that area. Wrote the 33 and a third on Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine, Daphne Carr. Hi, everybody. I am happy to be here, and I'm going to be right in the middle of these two wonderful people loving the Rock Hall, but also not really having the spoons to care about it. Yeah. Who has the spoons? That's no pr- spoons. No spoons. Uh, that's probably the right way to be, I'd say. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. So we have to, I have to ask you, you know, as someone, so you're from Youngstown, which is close enough to, to Cleveland. And in Ohio, I feel like that's, you know, that's probably the closest uh, like museum, cool museum destination. I'm, I'm sorry, I called it cool. But I just want to get your uh, um, thoughts on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and growing up in that area. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely growing up such an incredible thing to hear about it opening and to think, well, first of all, why Cleveland? You know, I knew even at the time, because I was a music nerd, even as a kid, what the objective reason, but it just seemed implausible and silly and counterproductive for them to put it in Cleveland. <laughs> you know, especially at the time they did, you know, the mistake on the lake was not anywhere near as a destination as it is now in terms of any kind of tourism or the mistake on the lake, wait, I'm guessing is a stadium. That's just the city. The city is known as the mistake on the lake. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Ice cold and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Ohioans have a real deep love of kind of wearing the badge of shame. And so they'll just wear it very proudly. You know, we're proud of our teams that suck. We're proud of our musicians who fail. We had Jim Trafficant here, you know, who was elected after he went to prison. These are, these are. I mean, I'm from Chicago. (laughs) You know, we know all about Blagojevich and, you know, we got, we got a whole bunch of dummy politicians and we're on the lake, but we would never call ourselves the mistake on the lake. No, Chicago's too proud. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Like the mistake on the lake is like Gary. But so when I was, I think in high school, we went on a field trip to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I thought was uniquely cool, awesome thing to do you know, an hour and a half long bus ride. And I was thinking about it when I was thinking about this. I was like, well, should I probably tell this story? But I definitely remember I was with my buddy Tom and they had the Beatles exhibit and he decided it would be a really fantastic idea to drop acid and just experience the exhibit as it definitely should be experienced (laughs) um, in its true psychedelic splendor. But psychedelics and uh, security guards and sterile environments don't actually go together very well. So we got about a third of the way through before he realized that, you know, 
sitting on the concrete outside looking at the clouds was a much better, uh, <laughs> much better way to experience the Beatles. But mm -hmm. we did, we did, you know, manage to see a little bit of, of the material outside. And, you know, I felt he was living up the true spirit of the 60s by being a little too inebriated to engage yeah. with this thing and it's a sterile environment did you have to like leave the museum with him as like you know a chaperone in a sense to, to like go lie yeah. down and make sure he was okay and be a good friend yeah definitely you know he started just deciding that he wanted to pour water out of his water bottle onto the floor and i thought that this could be an escalation yeah that could cause people to realize what was actually <laughs> happening was at that point you thought the rock and roll hall of fame as a concept was cool or at the very least it was cool for a school trip but i know people who love music have conflicting feelings about you know canonization in general but the idea of this museum and inducting people well i should say and i know that you've had other guests on the show who um might be in the same camp as me but i have also worked at the experience music project so i'm a bit of a music museum nerd mm -hmm. i really love them as a way of experiencing history even though because it's music, it's time-based art, it's really hard to make that into a compelling storyline in a physical space. I always wanted the Rock Hall to be a fantastic, wonderful place to experience music and music history, but I always felt that, it, you know, it's clear, one, I'm not a boomer, and mm -hmm. that if you're not a boomer, that- That'll really take you right out of the old Rock Hall experience. Yeah, and Knock I am a feminist. Your enjoyment level, yeah. Oh, yeah. two strikes. Yeah, I'm a, and I am, you know, and I'm an anti-racist, and so. Okay. Well, sorry. Yeah. So, so you get you get up there, and 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 you know, I had I like you guys, you know, we grew up with punk as something that was always already part of our blood. So the kind of hagiography that goes on in the rock hall always feels a little bit gross, relative to the way that the uh, Experience Music Project, for instance, it really focuses on the fandom and the experience of being part of a culture rather than just a person. Where is the Experience Music Project? It's in Seattle. That it's like it used to be called the Pop Museum or is that a, se it's a separate Oh thing? yeah, it's, it's gone through a bunch of different names. So it was like Paul Allen's pet project where he, he just bought all this Jimi Hendrix stuff and was like, oh, I'm gonna make a museum for this. But then they're like, hey, you know, um, maybe there should be another musician in the museum also. <laughs> and so, uh, so they collected a lot of really cool Seattle stuff, you know, all, all these uh, great old R&B bands and early punk and all through the contemporary time, and, but really built it around the idea of youthful, energetic experience of loving music. And, you know, it's a Frank Gehry building, which is an absurd mm -hmm. building because it's very hard to hang square objects onto round walls uh -huh. so it's almost impossible to do uh, so working so working there is like oh there's actually no room to hang anything here this is bizarre but so i always wanted to work at the rock hall but i ended up at experienced music project because i was a um, kind of protege of ann powers and ann powers was in curatorial at the time and her husband eric weisbard was the head of education there so that's how i got to know um, that side of curatorial and music museums. And a lot of the folks that were at that museum had come from the Rock Hall because it's a small world, you know, it's mm -hmm. basically those museums. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Nashville the Country Museum, now the Grammy Museum. Would you say that EMP was more, is more like youth oriented, more grunge oriented? And it feels like, you know, the, the Rock Hall Museum feels more boomer 60s oriented? Well, I think it's, it's, a bunch of different things. One of them is that the museum was built at a time when the kind of hands-on idea became more mainstream in museums in general. So the, the real centerpiece of the museum is that you can go into the space and, and play along with what kids call like the stems or the tracks of a song. They'll mm -hmm. have the individual tracks and you can play the guitar over it, which before everyone had access to that kind of stuff was was really cool. Yeah. This is a really guitar hero world that we're yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. And it was the officially licensed, you know, pre mixed down version of, you know, Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones or something. And you can mm -hmm. just noodle over it and really get a sense of what it's like to play in that space. And so there were a lot of ways that it really, it's like, you know, the our band could be your life story of breaking, breaking down the barrier between the stage and the audience. And I think they tried to do a nice mix of that along with 
celebrating people who became celebrities. Whereas, and I thought that's part of the punk generation and the grunge generation and the world that we lived in until, I don't know, Britney Spears and NSYNC sort of took it back into that super celebrity pop side. And the rock hall just kind of always stayed, stayed there. It's, it's always been a rock space. Yeah, I like. Well, what about how many capes did you know the Experience Music Project? Because there's a lot of because the Rock Hall robes. has a lot of capes. They got a lot of capes. They got a lot of robes, and they've got a lot of letters behind glass. Yeah. Do you pay or have you paid attention to the Rock Hall induction ceremonies at all? I have to say that I, I mean, I pay attention to the voting, and I pay attention to everything up to the actual day, and then mm-hmm. the day of. I unless I'm on assignment. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on, I'm on a day off, you know, those, those gigs are not for me super fun to just watch that stuff because it's tedious bloviating mm-hmm. from my perspective. So I like to see the politics behind it and how currents change in the way that the generations of voters shift ever yeah. so slightly. Like, yeah, very incrementally. Incrementally, right? I mean, but it's, it's crazy to me that Depeche Mode is in this year, along with Trent Reznor, like what an absurd thing that they would be at brought the in at the same time, time. Yeah, yeah it's a wild yeah, yeah. and craft work is still not in you know right. so yeah the the ordering of things is completely out of whack and you kind of just got to accept the victories when, when they come if they come exactly yeah so i i always you know i'm a lover of the underdog so i am always excited when it seems like somebody's gonna make it is there a band? I mean, obviously, I know we're going to talk about Nine Inch Nails today, and you know, we'll probably hit on like Depeche Mode and, and things in that uh, same vein. But is there a band that you have either like really wanted to see get in, or a band that you feel is like really snubbed? Well, I mean, in general, I would love there to be parity of women artists, right? And and when we, you know, when you're looking at the criteria, they presuppose a lot of things that made it very hard for women to achieve those goals, right? How, it's much harder to yeah. become a commercially successful musician and also a rock person, right? Like people are really coming down on the Whitney Houston induction because she wasn't a rock musician, but women in rock didn't make that kind of money ever. You know, maybe Courtney Love, maybe Hart, but they are certainly never going to be as financially successful because they were never promoted or given the same opportunities. Yeah, and do you think Courtney Love will ever be on the ballot? Do you think she'll ever? I would say- absolute skeptical like 10 out of 10 absolutely not i mean just just knowing who is creating the ballot i think it would you would need a seismic shift in the makeup of the nominating committee for there well, to be we consideration we do need a seismic shift in for the a number of, of reasons yeah. well, i'm a huge fan of women assholes right it's not very often that you get women in positions of power who are purposefully ugly pur- purposefully rude you know i love bet mittler's early career because she'd get on stage and she was grotesque you know she was rolling around in absurd makeup pulling her hair out doing all kinds of things that are just not sexy at all and Courtney Love had her moments but she's also a grotesque person and she's not lovely but she's really good at what she did but she turned a lot of people off well, she's mentioned. very fucking rock and roll. And I yeah. think that that's a thing, you know, we always get into this, what is rock and what, why is it the rock and roll hall of fame? Is it the music hall of fame now? Like, da 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 what, you know, what does it mean? And it's like someone who is without a doubt, very rock and roll is Courtney Love. There is no denying on that. Yeah, you and, can't try to claim she, any genre as they do with a lot of women. They they suddenly try to change the the goalposts on genre, but yeah, with someone like her, you can't really do that. Yeah, and she was enormously successful and influential, and for a decade at least on the cover of every publication, first as a musician and then as a actress and a style icon, and then sort of receded. But it, like you guys mentioned uh, last week, you're talking about Dave Grohl as this sort of I don't know. Santa Claus figure, right? Who can never he do anything really wrong. Is. So as long as he's as he's there, she's not. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, he, he, he'll fight pretty hard uh, against yeah. her. And as much as you know, Kurt himself was quite a feminist. It is still an old boys club, and just because they were grunge and cool and alternative doesn't mean they didn't inherit all that garbage. And garbage, I, I don't see getting inducted either. God, yeah. <laughs> see, it's like wow, really good segue, Joe. I'm doing my Super best. Good segue. <laughs> Get yeah. that Butch Vig, that big Butch Vig vote. Yeah, right. 
Well, and I mean, garbage was like such, I mean, do you think the cranberries could get in? I think the cranberries could get in. Maybe. Honestly, gar- I would, garbage, you, you know, had a lot of hit radio singles. More than I'd say Hole did. I think the yeah. legacy of Hole maybe casts a longer shadow. But the if you look at kind of the numbers with Garbage, there's a, a lot of recognizable songs from that era. And, you know, they had a lot of alt-rock radio play. But none of, like, none of the bands that I like from that time were ever getting in. And it's really, now I'm getting mad. Now I'm getting even more annoyed. <laughs> I'm always annoyed. I'm always mad. I never am happy about almost anything that's going on with the stupid rock hall. And now I'm even more angry. But I think about that. I'm like, you know, there are some bands that were so important and that also paved the way for like a bunch of other people. And it's just, there isn't any good fucking representation. There still isn't. And I'm mad. And I'm like, Slater Kenny will never get in and fucking... I think though the, the Tigra and all of uh, like all of those bands because they never sold. They sold yeah. a lot of records for indie bands, but they didn't mm-hmm. ever bump the needle at all in terms of mainstream success. Yeah, Bikini Kill never like they'll never get in. Like none no. of those bands that I care about will get in. From and that that's era. why I don't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, but you know th- what they do is they dangle hope, which I think is what what keeps a lot of people on the line, which is that well, Slater Kinney isn't in but who's to say they, they couldn't be, you know, time and history, but who's to say it couldn't happen, you know? And, and that's true. And, uh, you know, as the institution evolves and as it hopefully evolves, really, it's possible. Well, I'm just thinking about like any bands from the nineties that were like fronted by women or had women in them. Look, like, I, no Tori, doubt. Tori Amos. Tori Amos isn't in, nor is Kate Bush. Yeah. Right. Kate Bush is such a, like one of the guys girl who, is the exception to every rule because she was, you know, an auteur and she did all these crazy conceptual records. So mm-hmm. she should, by even the most stringent, obnoxious standards yeah. of what well, considered like cl- classic rock, be in there. It's more of an American British, British, that's British a, uh, sentiment. Yeah, which but you is, can't get more de- British than Depeche Depeche. Oh yeah, and we've had such a British class these past, past couple few years. Weeks. These it's past true, yeah. couple of years have been very, very British. But I mean, like, I think of, like, from the 90s, women, No Doubt is basically the only band I can think of that... And I think solo solo artists like Liz Fair and Alanis... Oh, Alanis will Probably fair yeah. better. Hopefully. PJ God, Harvey Alanis even. better fucking get in. So you, you wrote uh, the 33 and a third, which is, for people who don't know, that is the series. Each installment is about a different album, and yours is about his debut pretty hate machine and you know it's not just a, a typical some of the 33 and thirds are about the making of the album but what's interesting i think about the series is that it can it views the music through a lot of different lenses there's a lot of different angles and, and looking at it from different contexts yours I, I i read it and enjoyed it quite a bit i i would like to know what was your process kind of getting to where you decided you wanted to write about this I feel like the 33 and a third is sort of the third grade writing prompt that you get where you're like, if I could care about one record for a year, it would be blank, mm-hmm. you know? And then you, if you're anyone like, what who- a cool third grade teacher. Yeah, yeah. But anything that you do when you, you have a big empty blank like that, you have to say to yourself, you know what? What do I actually want to spend a year of my life thinking about? Because if I make the wrong choice, I am going to be trapped in hell. Mm-hmm. And so there were two other books that I wanted to thought about writing, one of which was Talking Head 77, mostly because I wanted to go oh, hang out with Bon Jovi's oh. uncle, who was the uh, recording engineer for it, who used to record with Elvis and hated them and just thought they were the worst band ever. And the other one was Smashing Pumpkin's Siamese Dream. And <laughs> I don't know how much you guys have talked about Billy Corgan on the radio, but I, um, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, he comes up. The, uh, the hate mail and crazy shit that I would have gotten from both him and his fans for saying literally anything negative. And although I do love Butch Vig, I, I opted for writing this book about Trent. And at the time I pitched the story, it was not very cool to like Trent. He had sort of come through his first, the entire wave of his musicianship as a, as a pop songwriter and started doing all these kind of weird esoteric, you know, Eric Satie sounding records that, you know, only the diehards liked. We're like, okay, this this is kind of over. And then mm-hmm. he basically got sober and decided to become 
a film musician. So when I first told people that I was working on this book, they, they thought like, wow, that guy is so washed up. That's so 90s. That's so hot topic. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these corny things. What, what, what do you even have to say about him? And of course, there was tons of urban legends and things about who he was. But when you start to really poke through to who he was and the conditions by which he put that record together and made the early part of his career, it's a really compelling story. So I got really excited about that part of it. And then I got really excited about the part was that was, you know, Trent Reznor grew up 40 minutes from where I did. And I played the piano and he played the piano. And I know people who got tattoos at the same tattoo parlor as his sister. You know, the, mm -hmm. the space between his incredible celebrity and my life was small on some, on some level, you know? And so I, I wanted to sort of look at that distance as a kind of cultural artifact, you know, people's obsession with a band and how desperate they want to be to be close to somebody and how they, in absence of actually having that connection, the, the kind of stories they tell themselves and how they interact with the music and the shows and whatever tchotchkes they get to try to complete that circle of fandom and erotic attraction and all the other feelings people have about a musician. So that's how I kind of came into the idea of interviewing fans who really on some level made a kind of moral and emotional lives for themselves around the worldview of Nine Inch Nails, at least for a duration of their lives. Some of them had moved past it, but at the time were able to reflect on, on what it meant to be a super fan and mm -hmm. have this. What year did you write the book? The book came out in 2011. It took a, it took a lot longer than it should have. <laughs> uh, Everything does. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I, I had mentioned to you guys that since the book has come out, I've been interviewed about a bunch of different things with the book, but the two main things that always come up are, are angry white men and politics, which we have come to see as a huge world uh, shaking issue. And the subset of that, which is incel culture. And it was definitely present. Although when I was doing the research in 2007, 2008, 2009, there was no such term as incel, but I was going to do these interviews with these folks. And, you know, I'm, I'm of a journalism degree. I've interviewed a lot of people. I've done a lot of awkward and difficult interviews, but I did feel actually afraid several times mm -hmm. because the folks were so unused to talking to women and sort of resentful of the whole idea of women. So Ooh. it was a lot, you know, and I've, it was frankly the first time in my life that I ever just had somebody sort of talk about women in the third person as if I was not one of them and how they hate them and how Trent's music helped affirm to them in some way that women were terrible, negative, evil, evil people and deserved to be thought of as fully human. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. Yeah. Because Go ahead and say I don't like it. Yeah. That's horrible. It's not the can of worms I thought it was opening. And the, the book is told then through the kind of prism of the people who became its the, the album's like biggest diehard fans or like the people who felt that they related or understood it. There's three locations where I found interview subjects. One was Mercer, Pennsylvania, which is the town where Trent grew up. One was Cleveland, Ohio, which is the town where the album was created. And the third was uh, Youngstown, which is where the author of the book was created. And Youngstown uh, <laughs> is halfway between Cleveland and Mercer on the highway. So it's called the Buckle of the Rust Belt. And all three of the cities are very much linked by post-industrial economic despair and loss of jobs and opportunities through the time when Trent was born to now. So looking at basically kids, men, who... If Trent had not been successful, he would, might have been himself and the kinds of people that are, would have been his friends and the, and the kind of milieu of, of despair from which some of these lyrics came from. Kind of the end of the American industrial factory. Yeah, and, like, and many of them in America. fully, fully passed the end to the point where it, these cities have been devastated by those industries leaving and they're who are left behind. And so it's really interesting because a lot of this book is 
kind of an oral history, like it's what the people were saying in the interviews in their own words. And that connection of where they're from and what they experience. And often, you know, there are some who are like, yeah, I remember when Trent was fooling around in these synthy new wave bands uh, before Nine Inch Nails started. So there's that really, or like I, he comes into my record store or whatever. So there's this, there's this deep connection both to the music, but also to the man. It's very interesting because it sounds like also there's like an exploration of toxic masculinity of the people viewed this through. And the people that I knew growing up who really were into Nine Inch Nails were like the queer goths. And so it, it's like, it's a, just another side to it that I, I didn't maybe even engage with that much or know about. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely queer, queer goth kids. I was one of them. And, you know, I, I write about a little bit in the, in the beginning of this idea that trans gender play and, you know, sexuality and just kind of open perversity, I think was a really big part of the, and the fact that it was happening in a very mainstream place, right? It was not you know, it wasn't industrial music that you were finding in the coolest record store that, you know, when scarcity still existed, where you had to dig through and pay import prices to hear, you know, Joy Division or something. This is coming out on a major label. Oh, yeah. Being played on the radio. And, you know, here's somebody in, you know, ankle or elbow length fetish gloves, stroking a microphone and licking it, you know, and do you want to be the microphone? Do you want to be <laughs> the guy? Do you, want to you know, the gloves. Do you, do you want, want to be, be the, the gloves? Who are yeah. you? What yeah. part? Of, tag yourself. Yeah, and it <laughs> and it was it was really really open to, for that I think, and it was meant to be open. And he definitely played with a lot of amazing. He used a lot of amazing artists who came out of that generation of transgressive queer art. You know, from the well, folks from Coil and Throbbing Gristle and all the people who are doing that stuff a generation earlier. Well, we've talked about on this show before, just kind of when talking about Nine Inch Nails and in just as a concept, like the, the fact that there was a song with the lyrics, I want to fuck you like an animal that was played on the radio all the time. Not just like after 10 p.m. on like a secret radio show, but like you could be in the car with your parents and the alternative radio station is on and you know the last song was by the toadies and the next song is i want to fuck you like an animal wild that it went mainstream that like nine inch nails went mainstream is a crazy anomaly in my opinion i i can't think like is there another band that ever did like that just is such a wild thing in my opinion yeah i mean it's a really weird moment in the history of of pop music and rock music and i think that's why it's fascinating that depeche mode's coming in this year because if Nirvana hadn't happened, Depeche Mode would have been a really big deal in the U.S. In the, mm -hmm. in the 90s, right? Bigger than they were. They were important, but they were nowhere near as important as they could have been if there wasn't this disco, 90s version of disco sucks that happened, right? Which is like, oh, thank God these straight guys with guitars came back in, you know? There's nothing we want less than Martin Gore and his, like, cute little, like, leather harness thing singing ballads. And we don't know who's singing them to, right? And and there was so much of that that was poised to really be the mainstream of American post-new wave, danceable, rock-tinged stuff that I think a lot of alternative rock pushed out of the way, you know. But Trent def definitely was part of the bit of it that got through, right? And it's it's and it's a continuous line of groove-based dance oriented music by white folks that got rebranded in all these different genres from industrial to techno to, I don't know, electronica, you know, all through the 90s, I'm sure you remember, they kept pushing that this was going to be, you know, Orbital and all these bands were going to be like the future of everything. And yep. then Eminem comes out and says, nah. uh, nobody <laughs> listens to techno. And it's like, thank God, 
back to the cycle. <laughs> but, but, but it's right. a cycle and mm -hmm. we keep pushing and pushing. And now we have basically every R&B and hip hop song is just like down tempo bass music, you know? Yeah. Um, why don't we take a quick break and when we come back, we will of course have a lot more to talk about. So we'll be right back. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you hydrated yourself. Because you know what, guys? It's important. It's, it's hot out there. I know it's October, but summer doesn't end anymore. Not and we brought that Angeles. upon ourselves. It surely don't. Yeah. So we talked, we, Hot Topic came up very briefly but it plays a major part in your book and i oh, I, I really thought you meant like a hot topic came up and i was like incels oh we're we going back into it and you just said no you meant hot literal topic. literally hot okay. topic and how the kind of explosion of the brand coincided with the explosion of nine inch nails and they kind of fed into each other where you can't even really determine where it begins where it ends like was was nine inch nails so popular that hot topic then be it was you know like where does it it's but it, you know i thought and you you can speak to it because you did the you did the research daphne yeah i became a bit of a hot topic stalker which was a lot of fun hot topic is incorporated in city of industry if you know where that is in california which is one of these weird towns that has like twelve thousand corporations but only a thousand residents mm -hmm. and they Ooh. have this weird like free trade zone so you can fly stock into it and just not pay tariffs on it until you get out of the city <laughs> it's a, oh it's the shell corporation of california it's amazing it's that inland empire it's it's really fascinating and and i was i'm completely fascinated by the, the entire um, way that, that that type of industry works. And Hot Topic is completely based on kind of riding the wave of what 13-year-olds find to be transgressive and finding a way to sanitize it enough to sell it in the mall, right? And mm -hmm. it was based on the sort of Melrose-style head shop slash cool surf shop type places in the, in the 80s but obviously meant to be a chain. And they, so they needed things that were nationally important. And of course you have your generic sets of things like Wicca or uh, ra rainbow pride rings or what have you, you know, that were coming in as their baseline. But the main thing is, is branded apparel. And it has to be something that is got national and international distribution so that kids everywhere will, will know about it and be interested. And right from the get-go, Nine Inch Nails was one of their major, you know, sets of t-shirts. And Trent talks a lot, has talked a lot, and his co-graphic designers and art directors through the years have been very forward about their understanding of and their desire to brand the band with good design, um, both the logo from the get-go being a corporate logo and the packaging and the aesthetic of everything that they do from their lighting to the style, the packaging being, you know, you look at it from afar and you know, that's a Nine Inch Nails record, right? It's got a texture, it's got grime to it. You know, it's not going to be, they're not going to put out a disco record. Right. And so, um, so it, it really played in well for, you know, that transition from skate punk culture and Southern California pop punk stuff to the nineties sort of mall punk mall goth thing which then turned after my generation i don't know how old you guys are but into like mall emo and scene music the kind yeah. of my chemical romance yeah. stuff and uh -huh. then they kind of lost the plot when you know twilight came in because twilight's like kind of goth but also kind of christian and so and now it's all like weird anime stuff that i don't understand it's um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of pickle feels, rick 
It's yeah, my topic has become Spencer's gifts, essentially. Like it, it doesn't have an identity of trans. I mean, it doesn't really have a transgressive identity anymore. It did. I remember when Hot Topic first opened, being like, oh, "Can you go in there? Is that allowed?" <laughs> like, yeah, you know, or like people taking their parents into Hot Topic to buy them things, which is the least so rock and roll thing that you could ever do. <laughs> We talk about this sometimes too, the concept of logos and branding and something that just occurred to me is, man, Nine Inch Nails is going to get a nice big area on the plaque. Yeah, at the 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 museum where they put all the signatures and everything and they they will utilize the logo. And sometimes it's sad when a band doesn't have a logo or if it's just a solo artist, you know, there's there's never a logo for a solo artist. It'll be just like Times New Roman font, Whitney Houston. And Mm -hmm. then the logo is like, and I think they put the whole ELO, like they engraved the whole whole spaceship. Oh, that's cool. onto it like they do the whole damn thing it's pretty cool it it, like really is advantageous for real estate on the plaque to have a um, wait so this is the one in that creepy pyramid at the top that you have to take the escalator to is that what you're talking about it's yeah it's at the top and you can walk through and see year by year with the with the signatures of everybody and then you know there's little stations where you can you can put on headphones and yeah pick on a touch it's like by the voting kiosks isn't it it is. The voting kiosks are, are a, a newer thing from the past few years. But yeah, oh my there's gosh. like basically an, an induction floor. There's no in-person vote happening right now. There's um, no like kiosk. Well, the museum's is open. Museum. Museum's, museum's open. open. It's like Ohio. 25% capacity. So there must be, there, they must be doing, I don't know how much they're uh, encouraging people to touch screens right now. Yeah. That's probably... It's likely take it away. You risk COVID to get that vote in for whatever, you know, Eddie Van Halen's solo. <laughs> like people, people, RP. there was like the Freddie Mercury solo thing. I just feel like now that somebody's in there writing Eddie yeah. Van Halen in. So the voting kiosk is a, is a disaster. <laughs> well, that, that, what, you, what you just said makes me think about at one point when they announced that Nine Inch Nails were being inducted, it was Trent Reznor. But since then, and actually relatively recently, they have changed course and it, it, all reports are that it was Trent's decision to include a bunch of band members, which I would say is a pretty controversial move because I feel like it's general knowledge that Nine Inch Nails is basically a Trent Reznor solo project. Well, I mean, the first the pre-hate machine, I think in the liner notes, it says Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's discernible in that, in that time. You know, his biggest idol at that time was Prince. And Prince was very adamantly, you know, I'm the guy who does all the stuff. And I, I play the drums and I, I record everything. And I think at that time when he was young, he was pretty cocky about the fact that he didn't need other people to give him input onto how the song should be written or even how they're mixed. I know he had a lot of problems with the first record going over to the UK and working with like Adrian Sherwood and all these other people who were good engineers, you know, and he didn't want to have equal relationship with them. But I think being a borderline stalker of him over the course of writing this book, I, I, I kind of came to realize, you know, he, he, he really did grow up, you know, and it's, it's something that it's always shocking when I see him on stage say, you know, 23 years on my way to hell, you know, he's so angry raising his fist when he's like, man, you're like, 47 you have cute kids you're super (laughs) well adjusted you don't really need to be doing this type of stuff anymore and I think that adding those guys who've been on the back half of his career like really really influential and Mm -hmm. supportive of him I think is is really respect a really respectful move and I'm really glad that he did it because you know in the 90s they just kind of tore through musicians Mm -hmm. you know but I also think that that was a consequence of them all being on a lot of substances and now that they're not they can actually realize that maybe it's a good idea to not burn bridges all the time yeah there you go hey. it's, uh, there was a there's a documentary that's not great but it has some good things in it called hired guns and it's about studio musicians and touring musicians and they talked to uh richard patrick who mm-hmm. was in nine inch nails and then left to start the band filter or maybe he didn't, I don't even know if saying he left is very, uh, that's kind of a diplomatic way to say he was probably just 
Trent was done with him. And he talks about how Trent was not very kind to him when he was a when he was a touring musician and like he wasn't even allowed to like sleep in like the same like nice places that Trent did. It was just he was treated like like a hired gun. He was treated like someone who wasn't part of the band, who was essentially a, a mercenary, right? And it's, you know, you feel bad for him. And then the worst part is he talks about when he started Filter. And he's like, so then I started Filter. And then I had people who were touring with me. And so then I got to treat them like shit like Trent did. Oh, great. And you're you're like, come on. Go bully the freshman. Have you learned learned nothing? Break the cycle of abuse I know. Like, and I thought I thought of all of my entrails was just about mommy issues, but maybe there were tons of daddy issues too, you know. <laughs> but you seem to think that the him including the other members is a a symbol of his growth and maturity, which I think is is nice. Well, I didn't. I mean, it's look the list of people who he's worked with over the years is much longer than that. You know, he definitely handpicked the people he doesn't hate. Yeah, it's a lot of the people that are that are still with him right now. Yeah. I mean, I think of the people that aren't with him anymore. Uh, Chris Verena. Chris Verena, which you know. makes the most sense because he was on, you know, Pretty Hate Machine and Downward Spiral. And it kind of feels like, well, if you're on those albums, like it's hard to. Those are the two big classics. I mean, they were friends. That, that was, that was mm-hmm. a, not just a music relationship. That was a friendship, you know. Yeah, from the, from the very beginning. Yeah. And then Danny Lawner uh, is being inducted as well. Yeah. But then the other dudes, I mean, we've got the youngest inductee of all time, Alon Rubin, who joined in 2009. He's getting, oh, he's getting see, called up. 15, 20. Oh. <laughs> he is, I think, 32. I, I would love it if he was 15. <laughs> yeah. make me happy. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, looking at all those pictures of Trent over the years, like he definitely only lets a few people into his inner circle and they're all men. You know, every Mm -hmm. picture I've ever seen is just a bunch of white guys crowded around a console, nerding out on whatever they're doing. And, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, do you, wouldn't you, would you like to write a longer book about Trent? And I was like, I just don't really think that, I don't know that he would open up to a woman, honestly, Uh, in the same way that I see, when I see him doing interviews with men who are really tech savvy and are really going into the the musicianship part of it, that Mm -hmm. he can he feels at home and comfortable and safe. And I'm a musician. I have the technical prowess. I can do the electrical talk, but I, I don't see him as somebody who probably has a lot of female friends. Um, yeah, maybe not. I know. <laughs> is a red flag. A red flag. I don't like that. No, we yeah. don't like it. We don't know who is inducting him, but it appears that it is going to be women based on the list. And we, you know, we, we've sorted it out and, and tried to connect lines as, as best we could. It's very insulting and strange for Miley Cyrus to be inducting him. That can't you know, be real. You know, it, she, it might not be her, but I don't see who else from that list. It seems like either St. Vincent or Miley Cyrus when I look at that list, because I can draw lines from them to all the other artists, and that seems to be, I mean, Miley, the connection, and, and we can talk about this a, a little bit, the, uh, the Black Mirror episode where she plays. Who, did she, who else did she induct? She inducted Joan Jett. Joan Jett. It's like fucking not fair. Like, That's it's not fair. really not fair. Mm, I mean, I don't hate Miley Cyrus. I really don't. I think it's okay to be able to reinvent yourself. It's just the, I think because maybe of my age, I am really put off by the bold face commercialism of it. This is no longer popular. I'm pivoting to this. Absolutely. It feels like it, it lacks integrity. Like it, I'm just like, I don't, don't know who you are. Authentic. You're just a pop star. It feels very inauthentic to me and I don't like it. Hmm. I don't, I don't despise Miley Cyrus. I think also like she's become easy to hate on or whatever. And easy target as a lot of young it, women are an easy target. And I think, you know, like that kind of thing, like we really have done, you know, we put Madonna through it and all that shit. But like, I think that that's what I'm responding to when I am like turned off by Miley Cyrus. I think I'm like, who even are you? You're like inauthentic. I think she's a poser. She shops at Hot Topic. Yeah, she's a poser. She shops at Hot Topic. God. And so it bums me 
out when she gets proximity to people that I think are authentic and cool. And then it makes me wonder, it's just like, well, if all these people are giving her a pass, you know, if Joan Jett thinks she's cool, it's, I think like Stevie Nicks thinks she's cool. A lot of people think she's cool. And maybe if Trent Reznor also likes her, I'm like... Yeah, I'm curious about that. What doesn't make sense to me, Kristen, I agree. Well, I, I agree and disagree with you. I agree with you uh, in as much as it doesn't make sense for Trent because Trent, I mean, look, he's, he's kind of a 70s dude in as much as he makes concept albums, you know? You don't sit down and... Like he has pop hits accidentally, but he makes albums. And that is a totally different era. And that one that he is in genuflection to somebody like John Waters, I think it would be really appropriate for somebody from Pink Floyd to induct. Roger Waters. Yeah. Roger. I'm like, John Sorry, Waters John would Water. be an Roger amazing. Waters. John Waters would be even better. <laughs> uh, I would love that. Yeah. No, Roger Waters or, you know, somebody who, somebody who did the concept record um, as a genre who could understand that that's what Trent was doing. And the fact that he was a pop star is sort of incidental to that. And Miley Cyrus, you know, she does make conceptually interesting pop music at the unit of the song, but she's not a conceptual album oh, yeah. artist. And it's just a different, it's a different era. And it's a different set of rules. And mm -hmm. I do but really Saint like that Vincent black but that, Yes, St. Vincent for sure. Yeah. The tracks. album instrumental whiz. Yeah, she definitely is somebody who takes the same sort of conceptual space as Trent. You know, I was thinking about, does Trent have, was he influential? And I think he was influential in a lot of ways, but I don't think his musical influence was very successful. In fact, I think almost everyone who tried to do music like him made garbage, like horrible new metal crap, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I do think musicians who looked at what he did and said, oh, I can, you know, I don't need to have a full band on stage. I can just be dramatic and have lights and, you know, my own self and do whatever else I need and write these concept records that are really weird, you know, which is kind which of- Which is very, very St. Vincent as well. I mean, right. I saw her a couple of years ago and it was just like her and her guitar, the rest of the band was not on stage for the first exactly. act. Yeah, and so I think that that makes a lot more sense. But you know, or as we as we discovered last week, Maroon Five did a cover of uh, "Kill Me." I don't. I'll shut my computer. I'll <laughs> shut my computer right now. I'll could, do it. Could okay? be Adam Levine. We'll restart. We'll restart. Who's the we'll same? Restart. We d we nope. I mean we technically don't know, and we also don't know how these inductions are going to go down in this new format, right? Like you, like you said, Kristen, maybe Miley Cyrus is just on the list so they can clear that clip from Black Mirror. I think they're probably just going to show the clip. But you know, the, the Adam Levine thing reminds me what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, Closer was possibly their biggest selling hit, but that song was always a frat boy song. You know, when you would hear people singing it, you'd be like, oh my God, here comes the date rape crew, right? And you just want to move as far away from pos as possible from it. It's not, it, it lived a life of its own that was the antithesis of what that band and that artist was all about. So the idea of Adam Levine singing that song is not transgressive. It's just like the rape culture stuff that none of us really want to be associated with. He does have nice tattoos, but he's a terrible dancer. <laughs> and that's the ultimate crime. Uh, do you think that, I mean, we were thinking about, you know, performances in this weird new format for the induction, because it's obviously not going to be live. It's going to be pre-filmed. And Nine Inch Nails might be the most equipped to do a performance from, you know, a studio or a like weird basement type venue. Do you think that could play out and could be satisfying? I really haven't thought of it. I was just thinking about FKA Twigs and how she has those amazing videos of herself just in a room, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. singing to herself, but she's also an amazing dancer, which Trent Reznor is not, you know? Mm -mm. Uh, so much of his stage presence is about his energy because he's not he doesn't move around very much so mm -hmm. i i don't i don't know it'll be interesting i think that they will probably rely on some elements of lighting tech to kind yeah. of make it more interesting yeah i and think you know possibly an arrangement that's not not the traditional one because just the frenetic punch in the face version of their live set it would be really hollow i now all i want to hear 
is a St. Vincent cover of Closer. And I can hear it in my head how it would sound. And I'm like, I want to hear that song so badly. I would just, I think she would just nail it. And I would really, really, really like to hear it. They're presumably with, you know, half the inductees this year not being alive there presumably will be some tribute performances but i'm curious how they will navigate that with artists who are alive and able to yeah i wouldn't imagine i i think it would also be an amazing duet too with the two of them Mm -hmm. it could really be fucking cool but you know covid being what it is and also him being one of the few alive people um I, I don't imagine they're going to be having a lot of tribute tribute performances. Yeah, but I'm, you know, we talked about his uh, maturity over time and his, you know, be, becoming a little, maybe a little more warm. And that is reflected in his attitude with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, he was nominated in 2015, his first year of eligibility, and he was very public about like, fuck that. I'm not, I mean, and this is even, you know, 2015 is that's not that long ago, but he was like, you know, eat my shit. I, I don't care about the hall of fame. And then when he inducted the, the cure last year, he was really taken by it. And now is, I don't want to say necessarily a rock hall stand, but he's like definitely playing ball. And I think that's probably why they let him include his other bandmates is because he's been pretty easy to work with and you know has a good relationship with them now and i don't know that it i mean kiss when they were inducted they wanted other members that the hall more or less said no but i think if you play ball and it seems like he is he was able to get his buddies in there well and he's very pro cleveland i remember that from when he was inducting the cure didn't he say a bunch of stuff about cleveland yeah he did and you know that's one thing that we are missing out on is the meaningful induction in Cleveland, which you don't get with a lot of the inductees. A lot of them seem like they were dragged to Cleveland to be at the induction, but it would have, that will be Jay-Z next year. (laughs) Uh, But it it really, it would have, it would have meant something and it does mean something because that's where he, he started his career as a musician. And I think he, there were also reports that he was planning on being there for the whole week because they do things leading up to the induction that he would have been dropping in at places and doing events for the induction week. And the, we don't get that. And that's really too bad. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has, has oh, you know, for a long time was starting all of his tours out of Cleveland and really always making it a big deal, doing special surprise shows with, at the radio station or in other smaller venues just for... Mm-hmm. For, for fans he definitely remembered where he came from you know and appreciated all of that and definitely you know with someone like lucky pierre who was one of the people he considered to be his total influence he was kind of like the david bowie of cleveland in the 70s you know he he spent a lot of time promoting and helping some of the artists who came out of that area and trying to lift them up too even though i mean one of the things when i was interviewing folks from that area they always said and it's kind of a cliche but it's interesting to think about that he he started in Cleveland, but he never had his desires to be a Cleveland band. Like they knew from mm-hmm. the get go that he just he wanted to tour nationally, and he was not interested in being part of a scene or like getting involved with any of the kind of local politics of venues or anything like that. He was immediately just like eyes on the prize. It worked. It worked. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So I don't know anything about his trajectory or like how it happened that. Did, like he was just kind of like a bedroom artist playing all the stuff, doing it all himself. And then somebody heard it and bought it. He no, so he was, he, he moved to the city and started joining, you know, back in the day, Joe, I don't know if your, your family did these kinds of things, but everybody in Ohio and Pennsylvania would go up to Lake Erie in the summer mm-hmm. and just get like shit faced at, at beach bars. And they would have these big open outdoor venues where live bands would play top 40 hits and they wouldn't have DJs they had live bands and it was a really big thing and so you can make a lot of money doing that the drinking age was 18 and that's where Trent got his start was playing the keyboards and backups and all those bands so he learned every single pop song of the 1980s to be able to play on command which I think is a really it's one of the reasons he was never an industrial musician because he knew how to write a hook and he wanted to write a hook and then 
you know, he started to do, join some of the more like conceptually uh, rigorous kind of school of art bands like Exotic Birds and stuff, but they were very cool and alternative. And I think he wanted to be a little harder and a little bit more poppy. So he started to do his own side project just in the off hours. He was working at a recording studio just as like a cleanup crew maintenance man type person. So he started doing those demos, but yeah, he, he, he didn't spend very much time. What, what, what do you consider putting wood shedding or putting in your paying his dues, your, paying his dues as a, as an independent musician, he paid his dues in like this sort of grimy, like cover band world, cover band world, which yeah. I think it separates him from a lot of musicians in that era who only ever really played originals and didn't have an idea of how to understand songs in different genres. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it definitely comes across in his very hooky, surprisingly melodic songs that when you that comes down to it are pop. Yeah, yeah as harsh as as they might be, they are. He definitely has a very strong pop sensibility. So Nine Inch Nails being inducted in 2020. Let's talk a little bit about what we think that could lead to in the coming years. Right. And you, we can, Who we does can this open the tributary for. Right. And, you know, it's both Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails. Seems like they're both kicking down a similar door. And I think the one is that if you've got all these members of Depeche Mode and now Nine Inch Nails, you know, together, that's at least, I think, 10 or 11 people who are voting members now. I can't imagine they're not voting for Kraftwerk next year. And I could see that being enough to finally put Kraftwerk in the top five or six. I just think Kraftwerk is really around the corner more than ever. But yeah, then- I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Although I wouldn't say, I wouldn't consider that Trent, I mean, Trent takes most of his influence from, from black music and not white dance music. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe he listens to Kraftwerk, but the, you know, the robots that he wanted to be were Juan Atkins robots, not, not German ones. Mm-hmm. I, I get the sense that he has to acknowledge, even when you look at a, an album like Pretty Hate Machine, even if that wasn't a direct influence, like almost literally the technology he was using was the technology that was, if not invented, popularized by bands like Kraftwerk and that entire genre that Kraftwerk was kind of at the forefront of. Oh yeah, no, this is definitely the year when the synthesizer is waved in the face of all the Eddie Van Halens of the world and said, ha, 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 this is a legitimate instrument. And when you are at the Rock Hall, in addition to capes and what are the other things you can robes. see? <laughs> capes and robes. robes. The other thing you see a lot of is like guitars, right? They don't have, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're sexy and they're beautiful, but you don't have a lot of keyboards around because they don't have an aura in the same way that uh, you know somebody's beloved guitar does. Although Trent's image in the Rock Hall is of him smashing a keyboard, which is an iconic gesture of his, right? His, his uh, roadies always talk about how they would basically just carry around glue and spend the whole night trying to glue the, Everything back glue the keys back <laughs> on just so it would be smashed again the next day, you know? I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily a tributary, but I do think there is, if you think about it in terms of being like a studio wizard type that Trent is, that Todd Rundgren is like that for a different era and a different style of music. They're, a key-heavy studio wizard. Yeah, someone who's doing like a lot of it himself in the studio mm-hmm. and doing a lot of different things. Uh, it's it's kind of well, a tenuous you know, connection, but... My money is always on Rundgren to get in as <laughs> yeah, far as just that. like he... I can't believe he's not in. I always think he's in. I always think he's going to get in because he just seems like the type of person who would get in. Yeah. It just, it seems like he's probably got enough friends who can vote. Yeah. You know, you know that I'm I, surprised he is not in. The more I think about it in terms of like genre, I don't know that there's too many artists that would get inducted that came after Nine Inch Nails. But I think what nine inch nails induction really does if we're being honest about the inductions is it's it opens up another 90s slot like because that's kind of how they they think about these artists on the ballot right like make sure nobody else is in the same lane like even though the music might be very different i don't think it is necessarily a coincidence that 
when Radiohead became eligible, then Nine Inch Nails was not on the ballot. And that they We're weren't just they, clearing the path for Weezer over here. <laughs> it's really what I'm telling. I hey, I, it's not my. I don't. I don't make the rules. Yeah. I wish I did. It doesn't clear. It doesn't clear a path for anybody that I care about. I mean, is, I, I think, guess the bummer for me. I like there is not. It's not. Does not clear the path for any women. It doesn't clear the path for musicians of color. It just clears it for just like younger, more of the same. I don't, I don't totally agree on the musicians of color thing. And as much as I think that if you look at Trent's history of musicians he's worked with, he's produced and that he's had as his opening acts, they're pretty often bands of color. Like, you know, the, he took TV on the radio out with him for a while, for instance. And I think, you know, they're one of the greatest rock bands that's still around. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that he would use his vote not to lift up other 90s white alt rockers, but to lift up underrepresented like leaders of like the golden age of hip hop. If we're going to get Biggie in this year, then that's the, that's the real wedge that I think maybe is being opened up. Um, I mean, I, I think like maybe with his personal vote, but that is just one, yeah. you know, versus like what symbolically Nine Inch Nails getting in means. It doesn't mean, I, I don't see necessarily like the symbolism of Nine Inch Nails doing anything to advance the causes that like I care about in the, right. in the hall. I mean, I did not know that he, cause like TV on the radio is there, that's like a non-starter, you know, as far as the hall is concerned not as far as my personal music collection is concerned. And, and so I think that that is more kind of the angle I'm coming at it from, which is as far as like what this means for the future classes, it means that we can get more new wave, we can get more like synth yeah. music, we can get more interesting white male music, um, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't necessarily open up a, a, like I'm trying to think of a band that, that like would be more inclusive or diverse that like Nine Inch Nails induction could lead to, you know, like, is there a way? Yeah. Joe, if, can you, if can you move the red string somewhere? Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I think of a, a band like The Roots, like when are The Roots eligible, right? Because I feel like if anybody- Well, Questlove is on the nominating committee. The, the Roots will get in. Like yeah. the Roots and will- they've been eligible. They've been eligible for a year or two, but you know, it'll, it'll be- But I don't think he would want to get in before like, you know- Shaka Khan? Shaka Khan. Yeah. Which yeah. is ridiculous that that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. She's the been whole... nominated like two or three times, right? Six. Six. She's Six? been, it's been twice solo uh -huh. and then four times with Rufus. So technically six on the ballot. It's, it's definitely a uh, system that works. And there's no problems. With <laughs> oh it. no, my eye makeup. Yep. Oh god! <laughs> now I just look how angry I just got. Uh, I I'm, the, I'm the Joker of of this uh, situation. We said that Chaka Khan had been nominated six times and hadn't gotten in, and she got really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, Daphne, thank you so much for doing this and, and joining us and, and talking about this stupid little thing called the Rock Hall. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug, even if it's just your social media or the book we talked about? Well, yeah, there's obviously the Pretty Hate Machine book. Um, I'm, I've been doing, I've been back in Ohio and back in Cleveland. So I work with Black Lives Matter Cleveland. So please check out Black Lives Matter Cleveland and resist Operation Legend, Operation Relentless Pursuit. We're doing a lot of great defund work to help do racial justice and reallocation of funds to community building. So we that's- We love that's, to see it. Ohio has a difficult map. Yes. Gerrymandering, so that is great. Yes, yes. There's a lot of good work happening in Ohio. So uh, keep your eyes on Ohio. We are in play. That's great. Uh, so in addition to- um, the Rock Hall in November. We also have other important matters. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I encourage everyone on this podcast <laughs> to vote early. Yeah, absolutely. And intention. That's a that's a very good message. Uh, yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, you can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us rockhallpod at gmail.com. If you'd like Kristen to see that message, you're going to need to designate that somewhere in your email. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us five stars only. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Yusuke Kim for the music. Thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Kozala. 
I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares? About the Rock Hall. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Uh, okay, this is awkward, but this bike says he'd appreciate it if you removed his skull pattern saddlebags. He feels self-conscious about them around all the other bikes, and he says you're not fooling anyone. You mostly ride with your golfing buddies. <laughs> Listen, I'm just the messenger here. Oh, no, I don't want to say that. I think you made yourself clear. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.